This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. Thank you for the amazing grace that we have experienced in the gospel And we pray now that as we prepare to study your word together, um, that you and your grace would would speak to us through your word and that you would empower us by your spirit as we just offer ourselves to you uh, during this time. Lord, as we prepare to read the scripture, as we prepare to dig into the scripture, uh, Father, it's our prayer that, that you would encounter us and speak to us and equip us by your power, by your grace, and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new today, um, we are in the midst of a study of the book of First Peter uh, this summer. We're calling it Living Hope. And uh, today, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 2. So if you would turn to chapter 2 of the book of First Peter, we're talking about hope grounded in the gospel today. Hope grounded in the, the, the gospel. Um, <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look beginning at verse 11. How is hope grounded in the, the, the gospel? First Peter 2, and let's uh, begin looking at, at God's word uh, beginning at verse 11. First Peter 2, <clears throat> and let's begin with the, with the 11th uh, verse. Let's stand together as we read God's word. I like it when we stand in honor of God's word. First Peter 2 and beginning with verse 11. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works And will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you do wrong and are are beaten, you endure it. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. 
he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless his word to our understanding today. You can be seated. If you want to take notes uh, today, kind of a recent feature uh, here, we've got, uh, we've got blanks for you. It'll help you in just kind of following along as we walk through. We're talking about hope grounded in <clears throat> the gospel. Week before last, the Southern Baptist Convention had our annual meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, and we always have a, a theme each year, and the theme this year was gospel above all. I really like that theme because whether we're talking about a Christian denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention or whether we're talking about a Christian church, the thing that ought to be the main thing is the gospel. (laughs) The gospel needs to be above all. But you know, the gospel is not just about how we get saved at the beginning of the Christian life. No, the whole Christian life is to be grounded in the gospel. It should impact the way that we battle sin and the way that we relate to other people and live before others. It should impact the way that we deal with trials and suffering. And we're gonna talk about how the gospel impacts all of those things today. First of all, what we see here is about battling sin in a gospel-centered way. Battling sin in a gospel-centered way. So let's look back, uh, look in your Bibles to verse 11. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against The soul. Now, this is not the first time in his letter that Peter has referred to believers as strangers and exiles. We've seen this before. We saw it in the very first verse of the the letter. And so what he's talking about here is that as believers, this world is really not our, our ultimate home. Right, Our home is, is in heaven if we die before the return of Christ. Um, and when Jesus returns, there's going to be a new heaven and earth that we sung about earlier in that song, Is He Worthy? There's a new creation coming. It is. Praise God. And in that new creation, there's not going to be any more suffering. There's not going to be any more death. And praise God, there's going to be no more sin. But for now, in this fallen world that we're living in, sin is all around us. It's like we're, we're living kind of behind enemy lines, and we're like we're surrounded by sin. So how do we do life? How do we deal with the sin that is all around us, and even within us at times? We battle it. We battle it 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. We wage war against it in the power of the gospel. After all, it is waging war against you. Isn't that what Peter says here in in verse 11? Look at it. He says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and and exiles to abstain from, from sinful desires that do what? That wage war against the soul. Sinful desires are waging war against the deepest, most precious part of you, your your very soul. And so we need to understand here that there's a a war that's happening. Uh, There's a spiritual, a supernatural enemy that is seeking to to take us down and, and out. Peter in chapter 5 and verse 8 is going to say this. He's going to say, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And so the stakes here in this war could not be any higher We've got a supernatural enemy that is at war with us, waging war, daily war against us. If you're not a Christian, he's doing everything that he can to keep you from becoming one. If you are a Christian, he's doing everything he can to keep you from being an effective one. And as a church, he is constantly waging war to seek to uh, foment a discord or a division or discouragement. And so we have to fight fire with fire. This is a a spiritual war that is happening. And, And the war is not against other people. Satan may use other people occasionally to do his bidding, but but they're not the real problem. No, what 1 Peter 5, 8 says that your adversary is the devil. He's the one who's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And so this is a a spiritual war. It's daily spiritual warfare. And we have to fight fire with fire. The great Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so go back to verse 11 here. What does Peter tell us to do? He says, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. But how do we do that? As we battle sin, how do we we abstain from sinful desires that are waging war against our souls? I want to give you four uh, principles here that we, we need to see. And the first one is this. Rejecting sinful desires includes replacing them. 
true repentance is not just about kind of turning away from sin, but in that same motion, as we turn from sin, in true repentance, we are turning to Jesus. And so, as we flee from sin, we are at the same time pursuing the things of God. And so the Christian life is a constant process of flight and pursuit. Right? We're fleeing from evil. We're pursuing the things of God, turning from sin, turning to the things of, of, of God. But in order to, to battle sin, those things have to be replaced with the things of God. And so as we say no to sin, we should be saying yes to the things of God and doubling down on those things. Prayer, Bible study, church involvement, right? Serving the Lord, sharing our faith, all of the things that help us grow, right? And so it's, 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 it's rejection and replacement. We're rejecting evil things and we're replacing those things with the, the things of, of God. Second, understand that in this battle you cannot be passive. This is warfare. You know, it, it's, we're like special operators that have been dropped behind enemy lines and so we have to stay alert and stay close to Jesus at all times. We cannot be passive. You cannot put it on autopilot. Third, understand that you are no longer a slave. Once we were, without Christ, we didn't have the Holy Spirit to help us battle sin. I mean, we were literally puppets on Satan's string. No longer, if you are in Christ, Paul says in Romans 6, 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We just, we just heard it uh, sung just a, a few, uh, few minutes ago. I, I love, I love this, this line from what the choir sang. Grace clothes me with the power to do what is right. Right? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're not slaves anymore. Right? We are now free. Free to do what is right. We'll talk more about that later on in the message. Fourth, battling sin is really about battling unbelief. I'm so thankful to Dr. John Piper for teaching me this more than, than, than anyone else. But, but battling sin, really at its core, it's about battling unbelief. Because all disobedience, all disobedience comes from a failure to trust God in that moment. Every time that we sin, Every time that we sin, the enemy is trying to get us to believe a lie that we can get more pleasure and more happiness from sinning than not sinning. It's a trap. Sin 
always hides the price tag. Sin always hides the price tag. And so what we have to do in times of temptation is to believe that by obeying, right? By obeying that true life, abundant life, pleasure, joy is not found in sin. It's found in God. David says in Psalm 1611, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Sin leads nowhere but to pain and ultimately to destruction. Obedience leads to life. And so Peter talks here about battling sin in a gospel-centered way. Second, relating to others in a gospel-centered way. Relating to others in a gospel-centered way. Let's check out verse 12. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So when Peter talks about the Gentiles here, that's just another word for unbelievers. He's talking about the way that we live our lives around unbelievers, around non-Christians. And he says here in verse 12 that we are, to, we are to conduct ourselves honorably when we are around non-Christians. And, and that word honorably means w- with integrity, right? Unbelievers need to see integrity in our lives, um, that we really seek to live out what we say we believe. Um, this powerful quote by Brennan Manning Brendan Manning uh, once said, the, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And, and when Peter talks here in verse 12 about, about living honorably among unbelievers. Um, the, the Greek word here also kind of carries the idea of beauty, of, of attractiveness, right? There should be something about the life of, of a believer that is, com- is compelling to them, right? I mean, if we're, if we're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a beautiful life. That's a, that's a life that's going to be compelling and attractive and, and adorn the, the gospel in, in a beautiful way. Now, if we're living that way, does that mean that, that unbelievers are always gonna, gonna, gonna like us? No, <laughs> it doesn't mean that. They may still criticize, they may still slander. In fact, Peter alludes to that here in verse 12, doesn't he? He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the, among the Gentiles around unbelievers so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. There still may be um, slander and criticism that comes um, because remember, if somebody is running from God, your very presence as a believer is a reminder to them of their rebellion. <laughs> and that's not always pleasant, 
right? If you were saved as, uh, as an adult or whatever, you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're, you, you would get around Christians and, and these people just kind of reminded you that you, your life wasn't right with God. And sometimes they can uh, lash out at us. But, but we need to make sure that, that when they do that, that we're being criticized because we're, we're living out our faith and not because we're being a jerk ourselves, right? No, what, what, do we, what do we want them to see in our lives? Good works. Good works, a life of integrity. A life where we're really living out what we profess to believe. A life that's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We want them to observe our good works. What does Peter say here? So that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. In other words, no matter what people say about us, just keep doing what is right. Just keep living for the Lord. Keep doing acts of love, acts of kindness, uh, good works, so that even, even if they may criticize you in the short term, in the long term, in the long term, the prayer is that your life is going to have an impact. And, and the impact, and pray that the impact will be that they will come to glorify our great God as they continue to observe our good works. Isn't that what Jesus said? Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, you let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, sometimes as Protestants, we kind of denigrate good works. We should never do that. Because uh, it is true that we weren't saved by, our good, uh, by, by good works but the Bible says we are certainly saved for good works. And unbelievers need to see those good works because that can be something that can lead them to glorify God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 uh, tells us the order. There we go. Uh, uh, church library is a good thing. Check it out. But right now, we're going to look at Ephesians 2. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. It is not from, not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Right? So that's the order. Right? Our, our, our works are, are not the root of our salvation, but they are certainly the fruit of our salvation. And unbelievers need to see our good works so that they can glorify God. So he tells us here in verse 12 about how we relate to unbelievers. And then in verses 13 and 14, he's talking about how we relate as Christians to the governing authorities. To the governing authorities. Look at verses 13 and 14. Peter says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Now, this is totally consistent with what the apostle Paul teaches 
about how we as believers are to relate to governing authorities in Romans 13. So I want you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 13 because I want you to, I want us to um, to see just kind of how these two texts go together in such a uh, totally consistent way. Um, Paul is. Paul is saying the same thing here as, as Peter and, and, and telling us that we should relate to, uh, to governing authorities for the, uh, in the, the same reasons here that, that Peter is talking about. So I want us to kind of compare. Romans 13, and let's look here um, at verses 1 through 4. Romans 13, 1 through 4. So Paul says... Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you will have his approval, for it is is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Okay, so let's go back to, to 1 Peter 2 again. And look at what... Peter says about how we relate to these governing authorities. Same thing as the Apostle Paul. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. And so both Peter and Paul are saying that in a fallen world like ours, that governing authorities are instituted by God for our good. Things like the military, police, um, courts, judges. And I know we like to make fun of lawyers and politicians and people like that, but Imagine kind of what the world would be like if, there, if, there, if we didn't have this whole system of, of, of governing authorities. Listen, the world would quickly descend into violence and chaos. It's bad enough with these structures in place, right? Imagine what would happen without them. And so what the Bible teaches is that in a fallen world like ours, that, that, that having governing authorities, and governing authorities that are dedicated to, to punishing evildoers and, and protecting the innocent. I, I realize that there are, in our world and throughout history, there have been, there have been criminal governments There have been rogue criminal governments who were all about persecuting the innocent and protecting evil. And in in that case, then we have to, as as the apostles say over and over in the book of Acts, when the, the governing authorities try to tell them, hey, you can't share your faith, what do they say? We must obey God rather than men. 
Because your ultimate authority is not the governing authorities, human governing authorities. Your ultimate authority is God. But as long as the, the governing authorities are set up in such a way that, that the intent is to maintain order and, and, and punish evildoers and protect those who are innocent, then, then you know, we should submit to the governing authorities. We should be model citizens. We should be incredibly thankful. They are functioning as God's servants, Paul says in Romans 13. God's servants for our good. Right? Those who serve in our military, those who uh, patrol our our streets as as police officers, they are God's servants for our, our good. We should thank God for them. Um, and, and submit to the, the governing authorities, right? Again, that submission has limits. If the government's trying to tell us that we have to sin, then we can't submit to that, right? But short of that, right, we are to, to submit to the governing authorities and we are to, to relate to them um, in, that, in that way. Now, let's get down to verse 17. Paul, uh, Peter here kind of is giving sort of uh, uh, popcorn (laughs) commands here. They're just kind of popping out at us in verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay, first of all, honor everyone. Every human being is created in the image of God and should be uh, treated as an image bearer of God. Love the brothers and sisters. This is your church family. Love your brothers and sisters. Love your fellow Christians. Love the, love the people in your church. Pray for them. Love them. Even when they're difficult to love, love them. Fear God because a healthy awe, reverent awe of God keeps us from having fear of other people, which is a snare, the Bible says. And then he says, honor the emperor. Now, now bear in mind, that the emperor that Peter is talking about here would have been the Roman Caesar. <laughs> Sometimes we talk about, hey, well, well do, I, do, I have to, do I have to honor uh, a, a politician that maybe I don't agree with politically? Yeah, because the Bible says it, right? They, listen, there, there were no Christian Caesars in the first century. Got news for you. Okay, when he says honor the emperor, he's talking here about a pagan ruler. Um, and often the Caesars were, uh, were, were cruel. But Peter is saying here to believers um, that, you know, the, govern- the, the authorities are, are, are set up by God and you are to show proper honor as a, as a believer. Um, and part of that is praying for them, right? Um, praying for governing authorities. We should pray for them regularly, both our civilian or military leaders. Part of honoring them is, is praying for them. Uh, recently, uh, David Platt, um, who I, I got to know when David was the president of our International Mission Board, and, and I served as a trustee. Uh, David, who's now a pastor in Northern Virginia at McLean Bible Church, um, they, were having, they were serving the Lord's Supper that day in their church two or three weeks ago. And David had, had stepped back uh, as the Lord's Supper was being served and someone came up to him and they said, 
the president's motorcade is about 10 minutes from arriving at the church. (laughs) And he wants you to pray for him. And so (laughs) David immediately thought of 1 Timothy 2, you know, uh, where the Bible commands us, right, pray for, pray for kings, pray for those who are in, a, in authority, right? It's part of honoring them, and, and so uh, the, the president uh, arrived, he came out on the, came out on the, the platform, and, and uh, David simply put his arm around him, prayed for the president. Uh, you, you, could, you, could, you could parse every sentence of David's prayer, and you would have found nothing partisan about it. It was a beautiful prayer. It was gospel-centered. He also had a chance just to to share the gospel with the president even before that, but he prayed just kind of a beautiful gospel-centered prayer. There was nothing partisan about it, Um, and and so he prayed for the president. The president left. That was it. That should should not be remotely controversial, Uh, but... (laughs) It turned out to be very controversial because there were people from the left that were, that were uh, uh, savaging David for merely for having the president on the platform. And, and then the next day, he wrote a letter to the, the church just kind of t- explaining, hey, what, what had happened and everything. He was not apologizing in any way for praying for the president. It wasn't that. He was just like giving his people like any good pastor would. He was giving them a context. Hey, here's, here's, here's what happened and, and everything. Um, well, well, then he got attacked from people on the right who claimed that he was apologizing for praying for the president, which he certainly was not. I want to tell you, sometimes as a pastor, you can't win. I want you to know that, right? It doesn't matter what decision is made there are people who are going to criticize. But, but David was, was, was doing nothing more than, than o- o- obeying 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 2.17. We're to show honor to those who are in authority. Part of that is praying faithfully for them. No matter where you are politically, we're to, we're to pray for them, right? Um, so relating to others in a gospel-centered way. Third, suffering in a gospel-centered way. Suffering in a gospel-centered way. Verses 18 and following. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, Someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Now, <clears throat> this, these verses are very controversial. In particular, verse 18, because of our own country's history with uh, slavery and Verses like this were used, even in churches prior to the Civil War, to justify the institution of slavery. That is a misuse of this text, as I'll talk about in a moment. But um, it was, they, the texts like this were certainly misused in that way. Uh, we need to understand several things here. First of all, slavery 
in the first century Greco-Roman world in which Peter was writing was very, very different than the slavery that existed in America prior to the Civil War. When you read the New Testament and you, you see these passages about slavery, the slavery that existed, first of all, was not race-based. People who were slaves in that world, sometimes they were people who had been captured in wars. Sometimes it was due to financial hardship. Sometimes it was just because you were born into slavery, but it was not race-based. And so slaves in the first century, uh, sometimes they even, you know, your, your doctor may have been a slave. Your teacher may have been a slave. And slaves sometimes function, you know, sort of as uh, professional people. Now, there was also some cruelty and abuse that happened in certain contexts, even in the first century, and Peter alludes to it here in these verses. But, but, but when, you re- when we read about slavery in the, in, in, in the New Testament, understand it's, it, when, we, when we try to take that and compare it to the slavery that existed in America prior to the Civil War, we're really comparing you know, apples and oranges at that point. It was very different. That doesn't mean that it was right in the first century. It was wrong then too. I'm only saying that it was very different. Second, the New Testament never justifies it. It never applauds it. It never says that it was, that it was right. It's, it's not doing that. You say, well, well why, why isn't Peter here calling for uh, the abolition of slavery? Understand who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to little groups of Christians meeting in house churches. They're like an oppressed minority, a tiny minority of people at this point, many of whom were slaves themselves. Many of the early Christians were slaves but they were a tiny, oppressed minority of people at that point. So they are not in the position right, to, to wipe out slavery in, in, in the Roman Empire. Like that was just not going to happen. And so Peter and the other New Testament writers, are, they're, they're dealing with reality. These people weren't in a position to, to abolish slavery, these early Christians. They had, to, they had to live with it. And, and, and so Peter and the other New Testament writers are giving them instruction about how to deal with this reality of slavery because many of them were, in fact, slaves. And, and, and what Peter is saying here is that if, if that is the situation that you are in, then on a personal level, this is how you are to to conduct yourselves. The third thing that we need to understand is that everywhere that slavery has existed in the world, it has come to an end because of Christians and Christian principles, right? And that was the case in the ancient world. Um, That was the case in, um, in, uh, in the early abolitionist here in America. That was the case in Great Britain where William Wilberforce, the, the main, the main uh, politician in Parliament who campaigned for years for the abolition of the slave trade and slavery in Great Britain, was, uh, was a friend of John Newton who wrote the great hymn, 
amazing grace. Newton had once been a slave trader himself and repented of that. And, and so uh, Newton was Wilberforce's friend and, and pastor. And so God used a Christian in Great Britain to, to lead to, to, to help end slavery there. And even in our modern world today with, 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 with human trafficking, and human slavery, yes, human slavery exists in many parts of the world today as human beings are, are trafficked. The, people, the main people who are fighting against that are, are believers, right? The International Mission Board that you support with your tithes and offerings, many of our people are seeking to rescue um, especially children and women who are in situations around the world where they have been trafficked or enslaved. Um, Ministries like IJM, the International Justice Mission, really kind of are leading the charge here um, in ending human slavery in our day. So wherever it has ended, it's been due to the influence of of Christians or or Christian uh, principles here. But what Peter is talking about here is, is that on a personal level, Right? And it doesn't just apply to slaves, it's anybody. When we are mistreated, we are to, to follow the ethic of Jesus that he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. So again and again, what do we see here in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 38 and 39. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Again, in Matthew 5, 43 and and 44, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, Matthew 5, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. So as believers, our our love is to go beyond that of the world. They love those who love them, right? We're to love those who do not love us. That's what Peter is, is, is saying here. Now, he gives us the ultimate example of this as he points to Jesus in verses 21 and following. So look there. Peter says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your your souls. This is a meditation on Isaiah 53, uh, especially verses 24 and 25. Peter is obviously meditating on Isaiah 53, uh, 4 through 6. But let's look at verse 24. Look especially at verse 24 here. Because we have this incredible statement about the cross, right? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Now, we've all, we all have heard that, right? We, Jesus was the sin bearer. Jesus, Jesus on the cross was bearing our sins in his own body, the sins of all who would trust in him. Jesus was bearing our sins on the cross. Why? Well, we say, okay, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be saved, so that we can go to heaven when we die. Yes, yes, yes. It was all of that, all of that as Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. Certainly Jesus was doing that to atone for them so that we can be free from the penalty for our sins, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can be, go to heaven when we die, right? That's all true. But Peter here in verse 24 is emphasizing a different dimension of what Jesus was doing on the cross. So what does he say here? He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. In other words, what Jesus was doing on the cross was not only something that impacts what happens to us when we die, is something that should impact the way that we live. When Jesus died on that cross, he was not only dying, brothers and sisters, to free us from the penalty of our sins, he was also dying to free us from the power of sin. You were not a slave anymore, right? We are free to do what is right. We are free to live for him because he's freed us not only from sin's penalty, but also from sin's power. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus on our behalf. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we, as we walk through our lives in a fallen world that you would help us to live our lives in a gospel-centered way, that, that you would give us the grace to battle sin in a gospel-centered way, that you would give us the grace to, to relate to others and to live before others in a gospel-centered way, that you would give us the grace to suffer in a gospel-centered way way. And Father, we, we are reminded of those who are suffering, especially all around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ who are being brutally persecuted for their faith and truly suffering for the gospel. And Lord, we, we lift them, we lift them to you. But Father, we pray that in, in, in any trials and any suffering that you would help us to do that in the hope of the gospel. as we just continue to reflect before the Lord, listen, where are you at today in a relationship with him? If you don't know Jesus, turn to him today. Trust him. Welcome him into your, your life. Put your life in his hands. Turn to him 
in repentance and in faith. If you're here today as a believer, how's your walk with God? How's your battle with sin? How are your relationships with others? How are you gonna deal with trials? This is time for us to ask God for the grace that we need uh, to live not only lives that are not only free from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. So Father, we give you this time that you would work in our hearts as we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.